0: you to be too friendly. Remember, you are Presbyterian, okay? So, uh... (laughs) ah, the family. More ink has been spilled over this topic than perhaps anything else. It is the one universal experience for everybody, good or bad, for, for every human that has ever lived. There's a lot that's been said about it. I love uh, you know, Rod Stewart, the rocker. He had a house right over here in the canyon. He's gone through a couple of divorces. He said he's not gonna get married again. He's just gonna meet some woman he doesn't like and give her a house. That's what he's gonna do from here on out. <laughs> There's a lot said about it. One of life's great mysteries, is it not that the boy who wasn't good enough to marry your daughter is the father of the smartest grandchild on earth? How does that work? Like what the therapist Rodney Dangerfield said. He said, My wife and I were happy for 20 years, and then we met. That's the way of looking at it, you know. And anyone who thinks that the art of conversation has died has never tried to put a child to bed. Well, they not talk about everything that is on the planet. And they will repeat everything that you should never have said. Have you noticed that? One of the churches I was at, a lady was sharing that she had had some people from her small group from the church over for dinner, and they sat there, and their daughter came in and was sitting down at the table, and they said to her, honey, why don't you pray? And she goes, mommy, I don't know how to pray. And the mother, all embarrassed, looked at her church friends and said, why don't you say the things that mommy says? She said, okay. So they bowed their head, and she closed her eyes. She said, dear Lord, why did I invite these people over tonight? Amen. So they will bring that back. I don't care what society, what culture or civilization, the bedrock is the family. Even those who are against having individual families, there's a reason that Mao and Stalin and others worked so hard at breaking the family away because it was such a resistance to the communist revolution. The family is by far the biggest former of our persons, of who we are, of anything that the Lord has given to us. And you really belong to three families. You belong to your family of origin, the one you were born into. You belong to your nuclear family, the family structure that you have now. And you belong to your spiritual family. And a great Jewish psychiatrist, a rabbi, Edward Friedman, pointed out that there's relationships in all those interacting with each other. And if you and I are to make L.A. the greatest city for Christ, I want to tell you one of the most powerful tools and something we will never get farther than this is our families. How our families go will have a lot to do with our mission, as Zinnick was talking about, around the world or across this great city. That brings up the question, what is family? It comes from the Latin familia, or familius. It meant two things. It was either the servants, domestics, or it was also a traveling circus, a Roman circus, family. Is that appropriate or what? Let's just close in prayer on that. But when you see this idea of familia, today defines in Webster is, quote, a social unit made up of one or more adults where children might be cared for, unquote. In 1970, there were 87% of all children grew up in a household with two biological adults. In the 2010 census, which we just took, it has dropped to 66% of two adults, and of that, only 50% are the biological parents. There are 75 million children, 17 years old and younger, in the United States of America. And they're growing up in family structures that have more assault and stress on them than any time in history. Did you know that these children's parents work 11 hours a week more than my parents did? The work schedule has gone up that much. And so just these stresses and strains and the morphing and the changing of what's taking place. And if we are going to teach our children anything, and you and I, Hear this well, this, your life is not about you, and it's not about me. Our life, though God loves us and cares for us, is for caring for the next generation. And to think of the world that they are going to inherit, my goodness. Next time, I always tell parents that you're tempted to say, when I was your age, just put a cork in it, because you never were their age at this time. And one of the things that we need to be able to teach them is how to handle conflict. Ask our children and the next generations. By the way, some of our children are 74 years old. They're new in the Lord. And when you ask them, what does it mean to be able to handle conflict? Conflict is inevitable in any family that you're a part of. But it doesn't have to be destructive. The right kind of conflict. And there's three things that we should be giving our children to teach them when they come to this. First of all, when you're in conflict, you should have a relaxed focus. Focus. By that, I mean you teach them and teach us how to be focused on what's really going on. It's not me against you, it's me and you against the problem. Second of all, not only a relaxed focus, but they should have a released faith. The only person to bring into your family fights, unless it's a therapist or clergy, is God. And God wants to be a part. He's knocking on the door all the time. He just wants to be let into those situations. And not only the sense of a relaxed focus, and a released faith, but a renewed love. If you will, a redeemed future. Because it's the moment of conflict you have the greatest opportunity to have a healthier, happier, holier relationship than if you never had that conflict in the first time. When you take a look at, it was statistically, I remember when I was getting my undergrad degree, it said it took four families to help one family going through crisis. One family can't help another family because it's not your job. Four families. And do you know what crisis was considered? Job loss, death, divorce, or relocation. As we sit here this morning, there's only one family out of four in America that are not going through transitional stress like that. And so the question is, how do we as Christians respond to conflict? And the remarkable thing is God, who created families, has this ability in the midst, and as we gather on this worldwide communion, with brothers and sisters in tons of contexts around the world. So much conflict. God has this ability of making spirit-filled relationships. Dr. Edward Friedman, about 20 years ago, as well as Henry Bauman, came out with this new school of psychology that's borrowed from the biological world, family systems. And family systems simply says if you take a person out of their system that they live in, you can't analyze them any more than a biologist can't take a fish out of the water and study it on the land and then explain what goes on while it's in its natural environment. Paul said it 2,000 years earlier. You just read it. He said if our vertical, our relationship with God doesn't flow into the horizontal, our faith is a farce and a mockery. But when God, in our primary relationships, when we let the Lord come in and to move, and particularly in this area of with this conflict and disagreement, it can be a powerful tool for helping us grow into his image. Once well, you've got your Bible, let's turn back and take a look at this, this relaxed focus. Turn to Colossians 3, and page 958. Paul's addressing, as I said, a church in Colossae. It's Greek, it's a Gentile. The Jewish-Gentile problem made the white, black, or Hispanic, Asian look like a fight at a Mormon camp. It was nothing compared. It was really intense conflict. And look what he says here in verse, well, you know, he's built this whole theological treatise on the supremacy of Christ. And Paul will always do this. On the basis of what God has done, this is the way we live. So he's built this whole thing. And now he gets to the practical, verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Hold it. Chosen? This is the Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. Chosen? I thought the Jewish people were the chosen ones. In fact, our Jewish friends that will be using our sanctuary this week, of course you know is Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur coming up, the the holiest day for the year, the sense of the sovereignty of God and repenting and asking forgiveness. What is Paul saying? Well, Paul knows exactly. He's a good rabbi, what he's talking about. He said the Gentiles now, because of what Christ have done, have been brought in and therefore are chosen along. We have been grafted into the covenant of Abraham. As chosen ones, holy and beloved. And did you pick up those verbs when you were reading this? Clothe, clothe, forbear, forgive, let, let, and finally do. Clothe yourselves. What he is saying, this is not an ethical discussion. This is an eschatological discussion and that's just a fancy way of saying, God in the future has already orchestrated a thing that's invading the present in the person and work of Christ. This is not about you and I trying to be this way, it's simply allowing it, clothing it, putting your clothes on. And in the beginning of Colossians, he talked about five vices. Here are five virtues, look at this. Clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Vont St. Laurent, the fashion designer, said that fashion fades, but style is forever. And what Paul is saying here is dress for success. I had somebody a couple years ago come up and say, one of the things I appreciate you, Mark, is how freed up you are about how you look. I know exactly what he's saying. But what he's saying is, what do you mean clothe yourself? Well, you put this on, and you act like it's you, and it becomes you. Clothe yourself with this as God's chosen one. His declarations are on the basis of what God has done. You can hold a beach ball underwater, but it takes effort. If you want it to come to the surface, take your silly hands off of it. It'll happen. You don't have to force air into your lungs right now. Let's pull down on that diaphragm of yours. The air goes right in. This is what he's saying clothe, clothe. Let the peace of Christ dwell in you. Let the Word of God dwell in you. We just have to give a landing zone for the Holy Spirit for Him to be able in our primary relationships to come and help. And Paul knows the anatomy of rage. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in wisdom with gratitudes in your heart. Sing psalms, hymns, and songs to God. What he is talking about, because the thing I love about Jewish culture, most Mediterranean cultures, is that conflict is not necessarily wrong. It's not right, but there's a freedom. Northern European, as you notice, as I've said before, Spanish, Italian, Greek, Jewish, Arab culture, you know, they're going to just be fighting and say, you want to do lunch? Do your lunch and come back? You go north of the Alps for some reason, you lose a lot of emotions. I always like to say to Carolyn's relatives, you never heard the expression, hug me like a German. You just don't hear that a lot out there. But they are still in that, oh, I know I'll get stuff from Berlin. But anyway, you just hug each other over there. That as you are watching and caring for each other, he is saying, there's an anatomy of what makes anger. Last 20 years of neuroscience has taught us you have two brains. Not a right and left hemisphere, a thinking and a feeling. And what was remarkable is that the feeling brain, though it's so connected to the thinking brain, it, once you let some of these chemicals loose, these transmitters to go, and once that, if you will, that limbic system, the amygdala and the lower, once those things are released, your thinking brain, your neocortex goes along for a ride. As they said, your feeling brain is the spoiled child that says, I want this, I want this. Your thinking brain is the one that says, ask nicely. And once you hit this place where you trip this wire, where you're mad in conflict, something takes place. And here's a place, a moment in biology, as well as in spiritually and relationally that can be powerful for the good or bad. When that thing hits you and you are mad because something has mentally upset you, not when you've hit your finger with a hammer or something like that, but because they have hurt you. If you take a pulse at that moment, you have a chance to release the Lord into that situation. You know, I. when you know that and you're focused on it, it works. Uh, Bill Crawford, our pastor down at our second mission plant down at Water's Edge, he said, you notice when a cop comes up to you how they're trained when they pull you over for speeding? They don't come up and go, you were so stupid, what are you doing going so fast?' Well, sometimes, but they don't usually do that. They just come up and say, could I... S- roll down your window, can I see your driver's license and uh, your permit? And so they take it and then they come back and they hand you the ticket and say, have a nice day. (laughs) What was with that? Well, what that is, is training. It is training to have this sense of relaxed focus. What do you want out of that outcome? A few weeks ago, I was out of church for the, my role in the Presbytery, and they were so upset. They were yelling at me so much. I could have been arrested for impersonating a pinata, the way they were just beating on. But, I, you know, because of your prayers and mine, I was kind of impressed. I just kind of responded in a very mature way. I come home later. Two days later, Carolyn asks me for something, and I unload on her like Stalin. Well, where did that come from? Well, where that comes from is behavior creates behavior and learning to teach yourself in those moments. And your kids are taking notes. You bet they are. And our next, our new Christians who are in their 50s and 60s are taking notes. How do Christians handle conflict in this? Don't deny your emotions, but don't rely on them. And when you're all worked up, you can overread anything. Remember the guy decided to come home and surprise his wife and so he stopped and bought her flowers. He's never done that and he rang the doorbell. It was two hours early and she opened the door. She's standing there just totally frazzled. She goes, oh, she broke into tears. He goes, what's the matter? She said, the dishwasher broke, the kids are sick, Johnny got expelled from school, the car won't start and you come home drunk. (laughs) When someone tries to do something nice, and you see it in the midst of the day going on, you will read it in an entirely different way. When someone cuts you off on the freeway, if you think that so-and-so could have killed me, you feel this rage. But if you think, well, maybe they didn't see because you've done that once in your life. Stanford runs a great experiment on anger and, if you will, cognitive interaction with emotion. They go and they take this gentleman and there's a I don't know if it's a 24-hour fitness or what, but they dress up some of their students to go and act like they're a trainer. And the trainer comes, and some new people signing up comes in, and he's just so mean to them. Like, he'll say to them, aren't you, like, 10 years late? Look at you. How could you do this? They're like, man, you smell so bad, or just give it up. And then they come in, and he, they hand out a paper, and they say, he's applying for a job. What would you think about him? And they, There's not enough ink in their pens to just blast this guy. Then the same trainer will come into the next group and say, you know, you're so out of are this. And they'll come in and they'll give an evaluation form and say, he wants a, a new job. And by the way, his wife just left him. Well, all of a sudden, or his father died, the people that were so mad before go, well, you know, you should fire him next week, not this week, you know. What's going on? Is this evaluation of the crime? The evaluation of the offense. And what Paul is saying right here in our families in these fights when these happen, we need to realize in that sense of Christ has forgiven you, we need to forgive each other. That relaxed zone. I remember one of the gold Olympic winners, uh, I forget her name, in the giant slalom, they were interviewing her. And they said, "What was it like?" Because she was just out of control. But you know when athletes say they're in the zone. She said she couldn't remember a turn she made. She couldn't remember anything. She was just in that moment. Or when an author is writing away or a composer, and they're just saying they come up and they go like, "Wow, or some artist will tell you when they get that inspiration, they're in the zone, it's like they're just in an out-of-body experience watching it come out of them. That's this relaxed focus. And when you and I are in those conflicts and teaching our children to say at that moment, not just gonna respond in the flesh, but you say, Lord, would you come in here? And that's releasing your faith. Not just to relax, folks, but you're saying, Lord, come into this situation. Let the peace of Christ rule in you. Let the word of Christ. It's a statement of belief. And by the way, don't share your family problems with people who are not your therapist or clergy. Unless your family wants you to. I had someone four years ago walking over here, we were doing our new members. She was so upset she had to come in because one of our church people, he's in a group with a bunch of guys, and he said, let they pray about this. And this guy came up, she'd never met, said, I'm praying for you and your husband's problems. She didn't know that her husband had been sharing the problems with everybody. Didn't help. I might say that. Or when a parent will try to triangle in and talk about another sibling by talking to the others, it doesn't help. That's where this ability of where you say Christ is in here to be honest and to own the feelings, but to be respectful in that sense. And it's so easy when you realize, Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. He said the best way to defeat your enemy is to make him your ally. If you really want to defeat the people against you, make them your friends. And he didn't mean that artificially. And we all love to say, well, it's the other person's responsibility when they have hurt us in that sense. It's like the mother that two little boys said, I don't have enough for one pancake. And they both said, I want it, I want it, I want it. She said, well, you know, Jesus would say to his brother, you can have it. And the one sibling turned to the other and said, Billy, you be Jesus today. I'll take it. (laughs) And we all do that in our own sense. We go, oh, no, 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 you be the Christian in this, not me. And it's powerful to teach our students, our children, our new believers, there are those moments. And they don't come along. And I'm not saying don't go looking for conflict. Some of us need to call up people we are estranged from just to check in. Some of us need to tell people that are too much in our space, back off for the sake of relationship. Not to wound, but for the sake of healing it. But there are those moments Those moments when a simple word physiologically and relationally and spiritually, you can reclaim it. Watch this. Three magic words in relationships are not just I love you, but please forgive me, or I am sorry. It's those moments when you let the peace of Christ dwell richly in you. It's in those moments that God can take, and not only a relaxed focus where you're in the zone spiritually, and not only the sense of a statement of faith of releasing what you believe, but also this renewed love and redeeming the future. That God can do that. Do you remember several decades ago it was this beautiful Rembrandt's night watch. It was on display in Amsterdam and some poor disturbed psychotic came in with a butcher knife, jumped the railing and just started ripping into it. And then a few years later copying that, another disturbed person in Rome jumped over into the railing in St. Peter's at Michelangelo's there's there and came and took a hammer and smashed into the knee, remember, of Mary before they could get him. Well, you know, the museum in Amsterdam didn't take Rembrandt's and go, let's throw that out. And they didn't take Michelangelo's sculpting and go put that in the garage. But they have a whole, as you know, career what's called master's restoration. And these incredible women and men that come in to know how to carefully and ever so gently restore what was damaged. We like to throw away our relationships and even people that we have damaged or that have wounded us. And God says, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me see what I can do with that. That's what this table is all about. If you go to the Highlands in Scotland, there's a particular mansion up by Glen Erie, which is up there. And if you take a notice that you'll go in, there was a wealthy family there who had a beautiful wall that had been painted this particular looking color, and one of the servants accidentally spilled this whole carafe of wine on it, stained it totally, and it sat there, this purple-brown stain on this wall. They didn't know what to do with it. Well, one day, Lord Lanson, who was a great artist, was invited up there to get away into the highlands, and when they went walking off into the glens, he said, I'll stay behind And he looked over at this stain on the wall and he looked at it a little longer and he went to the fireplace and got a piece of charcoal and started to sketch around it this most beautiful scene of paradise in the highlands that you can find up there. Still there. He sees the stain and he says, let me see what I can do with that. That's what this table is. God says your family and your child and your children and your friends All these stains and these mars, let me see what I can do with them. As this table, as we come together and as we pray, this is a time to be able to take the wounds that we've have marred in his creation and only the genius of omnipotence could do this. Could ahead of time give us freedom and he's totally sovereign, know what we're gonna do and to redeem it for his glory and our good. Let the Lord right here Let him forgive, let him protect, let him restore. This is not a table of any denomination, it is a table of Christ. As our Jewish friends, as they come together this week and as they seek repentance of God in their tradition and faith, we come with this unbelievable freedom. Not that it wasn't anything, but that God loved us so much That his son picked up the bill that we had done on that cross. As we come to this table, we come and we pray for the church around the world. Shall we pray? God, thank you that whatever we do in word or in speech, we should do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to you through God the Father. And Lord, we thank you that we are connected together together with our brothers and sisters around the world. God, we pray for Pope Benedict as he oversees a billion people, Lord, in wisdom and following you. We pray, God, for the patriarch of Greece, Lord, and of Syria. We pray for the Archbishop of Canterbury. We pray, Lord, for the millions of congregations around this world, Baptist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Lutheran, all those who seek and follow you. One day there will be one shepherd and one flock. Thank you, God. We don't create that. We just need to get out of the way and let you do what you've always been doing. So come now, Lord, and set aside these elements from a common to a holy use and seal your people to your heart. May they truly become the body and blood of Christ. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of our life, grant us your peace. In your name we pray, amen.